This is Mayo Clinic Talks, a curated weekly podcast for physicians and healthcare professionals. My name is Dawn Davis. I'm a professor of dermatology and pediatrics at the Mayo Clinic in Rochester. And I'm Dr. Sanj Kakar, an orthopedic surgeon with a specialist interest in hand and wrist disorders at Mayo Clinic Rochester's campus. Today, our podcast is taking a different twist and is celebrating women in medicine at Mayo Clinic. We have invited three dynamic physician colleagues from Mayo Clinic's Rochester campus to join us, who not only excel in their clinical practice, but are leaders within their field. Joining us today, we are proud to have with us Dr. Erin O'Brien, Associate Professor of Otorhinolaryngology and the Division Chair of Rhinology. Dr. Bobby Pritt, Professor and Chair of the Department of Laboratory Medicine and Pathology, and Dr. Sandia Pruthi, Professor of Medicine and Medical Director of Health Education and Content Services at Mayo Clinic. Welcome to the show, Bobby, Sandia, and Erin. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Okay, so let's uh, dive in. Our society is changing with women assuming more prominent roles. We have a female vice president and recent books by Sheryl Sandberg, Lean In, and Michelle Obama, The Light We Carry, have highlighted the importance and inequities of women that they have on a daily basis. Mayo Clinic continues to evolve and lead this change in healthcare. Our executive dean of the practice is Dr. Amy Williams. Our chief administrative officer is Christina Zorn. And our equity, inclusion, and diversity committee, led by Dr. Anjali Bagra, continues to push the boundaries in this area. We've also seen the success of job description cards where people are recognized based on their roles. So what we'd like to do to start off so that the audience can get to know each of you better is just tell us how long have you been at Mayo Clinic and what changes have you seen over the years in healthcare that are relevant and pertinent to women? Bobby, would you like to start? Sure, I'd be happy to. I've been at Mayo Clinic for 15 years and I have been very pleased to see the number of women in top level leadership roles increase over the years. In fact, I was early on one of the few leaders in my role as vice chair of education. And at that point, I think there was just one other woman in a leadership role. Now there's five women in my department that are in leadership roles. There are still more men than women. So in those top leadership roles, I think we have a little ways to go, but it's been great to see the progress. Oh, that's wonderful. How about you, Sandia? Thank you, Don. I joined Mayo Clinic 28 years ago as a resident here and then went on to join the staff in 1995. There's been a lot of changes, not as a, only as a resident training at the Mayo Clinic, but watching that transition to SAC, which is the Senior Associate Consultant to Consultant role in the area of mentorship. And early in my career, not only as a resident, but um, joining the staff, there was no real concept around mentorship. It was only until the last 10 to 15 years that I really saw a significant change at Mayo where there was a true attempt to identify mentors who would be not only coaches, advocates, but clinical scholarly mentors. And as you think about that concept, that really grew to the point where women in leadership roles, in order to be considered for future roles within the Mayo system, you had to have strong mentorship. And I think that much of my career in the last 10 years was because of strong mentorship that was able to get me into these opportunities or roles that I'm grateful to my Mayo mentors. 
I want to bring up another point that had earlier happened. We were actually encouraged to go outside of Mayo Clinic to seek mentorship or guidance on how to get scholarly activities. And there was a program known as the AAMC that women would go to. And that really changed here at Mayo as well. And I credit the Mayo leadership and our Office of Leadership and Development to bring that program into the Mayo Clinic so that we didn't have to go outside to get those kinds of leadership skills and help us with scholarly pursuits. Yeah, it sounds like what I call the see it to be it principle, or you have to be shown it to know it principle, right? If we know that it exists, then we can do it. Exactly. And Erin, how about you? Well, I've been here 11 years at Mayo Clinic. I was on staff somewhere else three years where I also trained. When I was in training, there was one female ENT attending. When I came here, there were three female surgeons. Now we have eight female surgeons in our department, three female PhDs. So we've seen a lot more women in the department. But when I started, I was told, find another female surgeon outside your department to be a mentor. And frankly, it was difficult. Mm -hmm. That has changed. I see a lot more surgeons at Mayo Clinic, female surgeons in other departments and other divisions. We're a lot more connected. Another thing that really changed the trajectory for me was the Mayo Clinic Grit for Women in Medicine meeting. I think it's been about five years now, doctors Anjali Bagra and Susie Moshler started this meeting. And I was able to find so many more women at Mayo and now it's expanded outside Mayo and we're networking and we're meeting and we've got physician engagement groups from this where we Mayo Clinic supports us going out to eat together. And so finding those connections outside my department has been really influential in supporting each other and mentoring each other, but also writing papers together and giving talks together. So it's been a real boost that Mayo has supported. So physician engagement groups are something that maybe not everyone outside of Mayo Clinic does, and maybe not everyone inside Mayo Clinic knows about. Would one of you like to speak to what we call the PEGs or physician engagement groups, why they're so important and how they help us? Yeah, we actually joined, uh, created a physician engagement group amongst our um, women's health breast clinic providers in the practice that I currently work in. And I was really surprised by not only the interest, by going out and having, often it was a lunch date that we did. And we actually talked more about some of the challenges we faced at Mayo. And it was a very safe and open time, a space to talk amongst our colleagues. It also, for some, opened up doors for, hey, would you like to join? a paper I'm working on or would you like to join a meeting that you know I'd love to invite you to a presentation on a topic and that these were the times that you could actually talk about it in a conference space when you're in the busy trenches of the practice it's very hard to get those opportunities to network or to connect with your colleagues. So how often do physician engagement groups meet and do they often meet over food and is it all business or is there some pleasure? We try for once a month. This is, I'm in a second one now, and we try, and it's difficult, especially if you're for surgeons to find time when we're free. And the clinic supports paying for our meals, so we go out to eat. There's some business, but sometimes it's just nice to, like you said, get together. But we also do get down to, like, what are you working on? Or, and sometimes just sharing stories is helpful. So it's not just me. So what are the what are the some uh, common threads that you talk about in these groups? Under you mentioned getting together and sharing stories, be that personally and professionally. What are the sort of common themes that have developed? And the beauty of the PEG initiative is that it's been going on for years, so it hasn't been one and done. And so, what have you sort of come to talk about? 
it's um, almost always around work-life balance. We look to each other to talk about how did you manage ch raising children during the time that you were full-time? How do you make decisions on when is the right time to go to part-time? How do you manage your travel schedule when you're married to a spouse in medicine? Those work-life conversations were so valuable to those of us who were in our group, were many staff who were joining at different times. So there were those of us who were 20 plus years on staff having lunch with someone who had just joined in the first two to three years. So those work-life conversations were really important. Let's talk about that. So when you talk about work-life balance, there's probably no such thing as work-life balance, right? It's a continuation of one to the other. But for example, having children, bringing up a family, going into early morning conferences at 6.30, school drop-offs, how has that sort of evolved over time? It was funny, we often networked around the nannies. Who was going to help us? Because we would talk about the value of having valuable nannies who were really important to help us do those day-to-day -day activities that were required to take children to school and bring them home, pick them up. And we talked about how we could often give the name of a nanny to someone else. That was also really hard in a town like Rochester when you think about smaller towns where you don't have access to a lot of people who know how do you get a nanny or what did you do to identify the right nanny? We would talk about that. I think the other thing was, how do you manage writing papers when you were worried about, you know, my children's activities were busy on the weekend and where did you find the time? And we would talk about what you had to do it would be to write maybe a little bit in a month and then come back to the paper, you know, two to three months later and try and take the pressure off that it had to be done in a certain timeline because raising children was often our first priority. But how did you find that, for example, as you said, you start a bit of the work, you come back to it, and then you've got your other colleagues, your male colleagues, where that pressure may not be on them and they just do it. Erin, what have you experienced with that? It's interesting because the data supports like during COVID, men were still writing papers and women were not as much because we had more responsibility. I feel like in some of my conversations with peers, coming to terms with like, we're not all gonna move at the same speed. And the data also supports that women are more productive later. Mm -hmm. Men are very academically productive early because like you said, they may not have as many responsibilities as much as their female colleagues. But women academically are very productive later in their careers. So it's just a different trajectory. And I, I'm only an associate professor right now and I'm okay with that right now because I have had to prioritize and I'll get to professor level and maybe it's a little later. I'm okay with that. And sometimes having those female peers and seeing they're still successful, even though it's a little bit delayed, is, is helpful. So, so when you said you're okay with that, <laughs> uh, and, I, and I want to pick you up on that because mm. as listening to this, I'm not okay with that. In that if you're feeling that your career is on a certain trajectory and you have to be okay with parking it to one side to do something else, tell me how you struggle with that. I would say one benefit here, and one of the benefits of being at Mayo Clinic is my salary is not tied to my academic position. Other institutions, you want to get paid more, you got to get to full professor. So I don't have that economic pressure. Mm -hmm. I know I'm paid the same as the men in my department. Which is something we have to celebrate at Mayo Clinic in terms yes. of pay equity. Absolutely. Uh, you know, Bobby, I was listening to when you, when you first started, 
Uh, and you were saying when you know you were one of very few women, right. and we know about pay inequity that exists in many industries, including healthcare. And to celebrate that at Mayo Clinic, I think is something which truly isn't trivial. No, it's not trivial whatsoever. And the fact that we're all salaried mm-hmm. is tremendous, and that we're salaried based on our relative full-time equivalent employment, and that regardless of demographic, you're paid equally. And I think that's important. Another topic that I think is relevant is that oftentimes when the topic of women in medicine comes up, it's automatically assumed that all of the concerns revolve around a family unit that involves children. But actually there's a lot to be said because women still have this issue even if they don't have children. Mm -hmm. They might be asked to care for elderly parents. They might be the person in the neighborhood who's expected to kind of always do the extra work. And often women do a lot of silent or uncredited roles at the workplace and at home where they live in their neighborhood, whether they are partnered or single, relative to having children or not, where they get kind of the female tax because women tend to say yes. So I don't know if someone of you would like to comment on that. When you think about the extras that women do do, and, and the great example, like you said, taking care of parents, um, not everyone has to have you know child-related activities that keep them busy. But what I've actually found over the years when I mentor younger colleagues who don't have to worry about children or, or other family issues that they have to address is they don't all want to write and publish three to five papers a year. And I think that that security of not having a salary-based academic promotion here is actually okay. And following up on what Aaron said is, I actually have to know at what point not to push. And someone doesn't need that extra stress. The practice itself for many of us is already overwhelming. And to be adding the other layer of, well, you need to write three papers this year, we need to know when our colleagues are telling us that that's not a good time for me. If we don't and not aware of those, we inherently create burnout. And I think that's something that I have learned and I think Mayo has been very good about identifying when it is not a good time to push the academic scholarly activities and let the individual set the pace. So Bobby, as a department chair, you struggle with the division of labor amongst your colleagues. And I know you strive for equity because you're an empathic servant leader, but there's a lot of literature that shows that women are given a lot of silent tasks or tasks that go unrecognized. And if they are given a task, often they do not get a title or protected time versus when the equivalent is given to a man, he's given a title and some protected time. So could you talk to us about that concept in general? And then particularly as your role as a leader, Sure. We've tried to actually identify roles when there appears to actually be a need and then give a title to it and then give protected time along with that. And often it's in the realm of education, diversity, equity and inclusion. We've had people that have worked towards career counseling for younger faculty members, so more of like a mentorship role. And we've actually tried to identify that and give that a title. And then another thing we've done that's been, I think, very important is whenever one of these positions exists and we've given it a title, we open it up to the whole department and allow them to apply for it rather than just tapping someone on the shoulder. That I think tends to lead to probably more of just who you're perhaps comfortable with and it decreases the diversity of people we get applying for roles. Since we've started, it's only been about five years that we've just always had this open policy now for any type of leadership role. Since we've started 
having these open positions and making them widely available and sending them out to the whole department. We've had people come out um, that have expressed interests that I never would have thought of, but have become amazing leaders. And that includes a lot of women. So roles such as rotation director for educational, for students who come through educational roles, I think often don't get recognized. That's mm -hmm. one of those areas, I think, mm -hmm. or being a mentor and being actually recognized for that. Even if there's no protected time, it's something that you can recognize and put on your CV. I'm glad you mentioned that because traditionally women would apply for a role when they were super qualified, whereas men would probably mm -hmm. just apply mm -hmm. and see what has happened. Have you yeah. seen that shift change then a little bit from what you've uh, introduced? I believe so. I think it still takes sometimes a little nudging if you think someone might be qualified to get them to apply. But I have seen people that are more junior in their career applying for leadership roles because we've really made sure to make it open and make it clear what the qualifications are and not set the qualifications to such a high level that only a senior level person would apply if it's appropriate to do so. Yeah, I'm glad that you brought that up, Sanj, because I think it's a true difference in how women and men in general are acculturated in mm. society. Women are told to be modest and humble. We have our rich ties values at Mayo Clinic that align with being modest and humble. And everyone at Mayo Clinic is a superstar and everyone at Mayo Clinic is a leader. And we have a very horizontal team structure of which we are proud because really it's the patient who's in charge at Mayo Clinic and we are there to help them. But we also know that if a woman speaks up and talks about her competence and something that that's she's interpreted as, as being mean or rude or bombastic and if a man expresses that same statement in the same tone it's that he has confidence and, and is seen as naturally as a leader so Aaron would you like to comment on that I hear that in surgery unfortunately some of our female trainees get negative feedback if they are too confident mm -hmm. and they say what am I supposed to do with that there's national data that women are feeling less confident in the OR or they get less autonomy, although objectively their skills are the same as male trainees. I have female peers here who get mixed feedback about their leadership, and it's not feedback that they are able to act on. They're not sure what to do with vague feedback about driving consensus or they're unapproachable. And so Sometimes we get these leadership evaluations that feel somewhat gendered still, unfortunately. And I would like to see more examination of our evaluations and our leadership. Or like we said earlier, you get tasked with something that isn't seen as valuable. Fortunately now, diversity, equity, and inclusion work is part of promotion. As I was the diversity leader in my department, and sometimes it felt like the work I was doing made people more comfortable than that. Than it was valued. Although papers are coming out of that and change is coming out of that and it's important. And so fortunately now Mayo recognizes that as important, similar to like clinical practice work or being on committees that deal with dollars and cents and buildings and those kind of things. So putting value on the work that women do do. But then I think also we need to look at how we are evaluated and what is valued in leadership, I think is still an opportunity. Well, one of the beauties I think here at Mayo Clinic is having an operating room 
adjacent to colleagues. I mean, I've seen you more in the last few weeks than, than ever before. And, and it's been enlightening what you've told me, for example, how an error happens and it's it's performed by a, a man versus a woman, how it's perceived differently. And there's, there's a Harvard study, I think, that you shared with us about this. They looked at referral data. So if a female surgeon had a better than expected outcome, their referrals were flat. And if a man had a better than expected outcome, their referrals went up. After an error, that female surgeon had fewer referrals, a male surgeon had an error, it was flat. So she gets penalized more and doesn't get the benefit. We feel that sometimes, unfortunately. And let's also talk about time. So everyone who has a career is short on time and everyone with a life outside of their career is short on time, especially in our society these days with things going faster and more furiously. There's data that shows that patients expect more time with their female physicians than they do for male physicians with the same diagnosis and the same subspecialist. So that's taxing on women and patients expect more nurturing and care from their female physicians that's been shown over and over. We also hear anecdotally from colleagues that if a female physician is late to a meeting, it's probably because she's not committed to her job versus if a male physician is late to a meeting or seeing a patient, it's because he's busy doing something important. So Sandia, as a member of the breast clinic where oftentimes the patients mm-hmm. are female and require a lot of mm-hmm. psychosocial education and nurturing, can you comment on that? I know it's a reality for you and your colleagues. It is, it's absolutely true of what you stated about the commitment, not only the time that we're given, but often the female physicians um, in the practice tend to be the one to expend more energy to provide the extra compassion with the diagnosis, especially around breast cancer. And then the time we spend not only on phone calls we make, it's not just the in-basket messages, it's often picking up the phone and, and talking through a diagnosis. And that extra time we spend is not really recognized as value back to the practice. Fortunately for many of us, those patients are writing and provide amazing evaluations of physicians in the breast clinic because of the extra time we give them. So there's no question our patients value us and recognize it in compliments and very high patient satisfaction scores, which is wonderful. And I think that that needs to be somehow, if there was a way to acknowledge and tap that physician for saying, you know, you know, we you went above and beyond more than just your clinical time with the patient. I think the physicians would appreciate that. And I want to bring up a comment that Aaron raised about when we are considered more motivated or or stronger physicians and their confidence is is perceived differently. And and those often are labels that the physician carries throughout their career, whereas our male counterparts aren't often given that label. And I think as a solution to that is we need to allow opportunities for the label to be addressed rather than it showing up in multiple evaluations over the years and no one really has made an attempt to say tell us more about what happened in that situation where you were labeled pushy or aggressive or overconfident and i think that that is something institution and how we look at leadership development is have those conversations and get that off of that individual's evaluation because it does actually create times that where those women don't want to pursue leadership roles at Mayo. 
Well, speaking of labels, let's talk about the label of doctor. Because oftentimes in healthcare, at least in my practice, I find that a lot of patients automatically migrate their head and their ears to the tallest male in the room. And be, as a petite female myself, even though I'm 26 in my head, I may be the most senior and I'm usually the director of the care team that's in front of the patient. I wonder if any of you have had that experience. And then I would love for Bobby to talk about the doctor buddy badges that we've been working on at Mayo Clinic and their value to our colleagues based on their roles and being recognized as a physician. Yeah, I definitely get called by my first name far more than my male colleagues. And someone at Mayo Clinic in Arizona actually counted first names in the inbox messages mm -hmm. and female physicians get called by their first name. How does that name. make you feel? It's frustrating sometimes. And I have corrected patients in clinic and I say, no, Dr. O'Brien, you can call me Dr. O'Brien. It's Aaron at home, Dr. O'Brien at work. I've had people ask me like, are you the one doing the surgery? And maybe they don't know that an otolaryngologist is also a surgeon. Mm -hmm. And I've had male colleagues say, well, I get asked that too. But I think it's the number of times. Mm -hmm. It's how frequent. It's more frequent for us. And so it, it feels like partly the patient doesn't expect that I'm a surgeon, or maybe they just don't understand. It gets tiring. So I do try to demonstrate, especially when I have a female training with me, that's how you correct it. It's harder in the inbox. I, I don't send a patient message back like, please call me Dr. O'Brien. Mm -hmm. I'll have my nurse respond, Dr. O'Brien said this. It's subtle, it's a microaggression that's subtle, but sometimes it can be wearing. And Sandia? Yeah, I actually think um, sometimes those of us with diverse backgrounds, and if you think about having the doctor label has actually made a difference where patients um, recognize you as the doctor. Fortunately, Mayo, I don't sense it a lot, but I know that elsewhere people have felt it when they come from a, di a, a different color or training or have an accent that that is often looked at as, are you the doctor or are you a trainee? And I think that the the doctor badges I have found has really made a difference in my practice. I don't know from the patient's perspective that they really cared as much. Sometimes it's their family and those around the room, they bring in the room with them that want to know, are you the doctor? And especially when we have training programs with residents coming in, it establishes that Dr. X will be coming in and you have your doctor badge. But I'd love to hear about your buddy badges. Yeah, because Bobby, especially as a pathologist, you have less direct patient care content, right. but you still take care of, of patients. And there are some pathologists who do take care of patients face to face. Mm -hmm. But the other unique thing is as a department chair, but also as a pathologist, oftentimes the doctor badges come into effect when you're in a group meeting, which is a different dynamic because these are peers and colleagues and we still have this problem. It's not just a patient problem. Right. I think it's worth describing the doctor badges we're talking about too. There are these little badges that go right under your name badge. So they stick out underneath. They say doctor. Don, you and I have talked about this in the past. Doctor is a nice clear term that our patients can understand rather than say physician, it's a little challenging because there are other people in healthcare that are also doctorates but aren't don't have a medical degree. But I think we have to worry about what our patients think. This is really for our patients. So also being a petite woman like you, Don, I think it is helpful. 
I don't typically see patients, but if I did, I know certainly from my past experience that I'm typically overlooked. It goes to the tallest person in the room, usually the man. And as you mentioned, Sandia, like people that have a diverse background, maybe a different skin color or an accent, they may be overlooked as being the physician as well. So the doctor badges are helpful in that way. But then Don, you asked about my own experience as a pathologist. It is true, I do a lot of collaboration with my colleagues at the institution. And I think it's important for all of us as physicians, as pathologists to wear these badges. I've had some colleagues that have had experiences where they didn't wear them and they got addressed by their first name, whereas everyone else was Dr. This, Dr. Davis, Dr. You know, and so, if we're all gonna be working together, the doctor badges also help establish that level that we're all part of the patient care team. I found it to be fascinating from both a physician's colleague's perspective and patients. I mean, when I started wearing it, patients would ask me, why, why are you wearing it? And, and I think when you take the time to explain it, they really appreciated it. But what was interesting was for colleagues, especially male colleagues, because at first it was like, well, why are you wearing it? I don't quite understand, but when you do explain it, I think that's one of the things I've been most proud of recently to see at Mayo is how that's sort of taken off from a pilot project to be sort of campus wide now. And it's not, as you said, it's not just doctors, it could be physician assistant, it could be nurse, but I think it just provides clarity Mm -hmm. when you don't need to provide clarity. It's an unwritten sort of rule that sort of exists and now patients can see it. When you were say, talking about talking peers, recognizing that someone's a physician or calling them doctor, it's Julia Files and Sharon Hayes and colleagues who actually sat down and counted mm-hmm. the introductions for grand rounds for internal medicine and found statistically, female colleagues were not called doctor when they were introduced at grand rounds. And that paper got a lot of public press and I had a colleague here say, oh, now after this paper came out, now I always have to remember like, oh, am I calling her doctor? In a way that sounded like slightly annoyed, but I was like, well, then it worked. It worked yeah. But that came about because someone took the time to count. And so I think if we're gonna make changes, like women are being called doctor more often, or looking at leadership or looking at evaluations and inbox messages, all that thing, all those things come down to data and when the data is out there, then people say like, oh, yes, that is a real thing. What you experience is not just you. And then that's how we fix it. And that's how we have doctor badges or that's how people are aware to call female physicians doctor. We know we have salary equity because we looked at the data. And so I think if we're looking at solutions, I'm a big data person. Like, let's count those things. Mm-hmm. Data matters. Yeah. Some data people matters. need convincing. Right. And it gets away from perception that, oh, it's just in your head. This isn't a problem. Yeah, you're just too sensitive. Well, Mm -hmm. no, the data supports. So let's talk about something that's hard to quantify, and that's guilt. When you think about, we talked a little bit about work-life balance, be that leadership role, promotion, family, partnerships. How do you deal with that? Because I'm speaking from a personal perspective. I mean, I certainly married up. And when I, when I see my wife and what she does, both professionally and personally, there's a level of guilt where you want to be an expert in all facets. How do you deal with that? Well, and let me interject, Sanj, if I may, before we have our excellent colleagues answer. Is it not just a want, but is it also a societal expectation? Of course. Men yeah. are allowed to just be a doctor and be an excellent doctor. And that's like a free pass for everything else. If women are supposed to be excellent doctors, they're also supposed to be excellent best friends, 
and daughters and caregivers and neighbors and community philanthropists and beautiful and attractive and have 20 hobbies. And so is it guilt? Is it expectation? Is it both? Mm -hmm. You know, when you think about um, the Mayo model, the three shields, and I always think of education, research, practice, and then, of course, administrative roles that many of us women are holding. One thing that Mayo has been really trying to cultivate is you can't be good at everything. And I think that's where the guilt has really come back to sort of the front of page when I'm talking to colleagues as I watch women in medicine say, you don't have to be excellent in all three. If you could really focus your time and your expertise and your research and your practice, pick two of the four. And I think that has helped me over the years. I am not an educator teaching in the Mayo Medical School, and my spouse loves to do that. But I want to be a clinician and do my research and, you know, and write protocols and and participate in clinical trials. If that is something that I think we should help our younger colleagues and mentor as we think of the future leaders at Mayo, that it's okay to excel in these two. And and that would hopefully reduce some of that guilt that you feel like I have to be good at everything. Then, of course, adding family life on top of that, which we should actually add as the fifth shield, if you think about it, is the (laughs) other work-life balance, which is the fifth shield. How do you manage that? And part of that is watching and learning from your other colleagues. How did they do it? And having forums like this. And years ago, Dawn led a wonderful session that we did at Mayo where we had the husband and wife couples actually talk about how did we share responsibilities as families were looking at careers at Mayo and then raising children. Remember those? That was actually one never repeated that, but that is worth re-talking about it. Yeah, well, thank Mm -hmm. you. It was permission for men to have permission to be included more in areas where they might feel boxed out or excluded by society. And it was a way for women to have permission to let certain things go. I freely admitted that we get help with our lawn service and with our home and things like that, because that's what helps keep us afloat. I don't have to do everything. I can give up some things and create space for myself and also empower my spouse. Bobby, your thoughts, having it all, doing it all, being it all. I think that is one of the problems is we're ambitious and driven and we try to do it all, but we do have to give ourselves that grace that we can't do it all. For me, it's also been very important to have good communications with my spouse and make sure he's extremely supportive, but he also understands, okay, I'm not gonna be around for the next four weekends because I'm traveling and speaking at all these different conferences. And I didn't just drop that on him. He knew that that was something that I enjoy doing, going and being a visiting professor, giving talks, and he's strongly supportive of that. And we've stopped to talk and say, is this okay with you that I'm gone this amount of time? And while he'd like me around more, he is understanding and we've had those talks. And I think that's the important thing is to have those talks. And when I'm gone, he is doing some of the household tasks like laundry and cooking and taking care of. We don't have children, but we have cats that he takes care of. So I think having that open line of communication is essential. You know, when I remember as, 
a mother with two young children and going to my chair at Mayo 20 years ago saying that I would like to work part-time but only work from nine to three, which were around the hours of which you drop your children at school and pick them up. And I had a, a wonderful chair who went on to be the medical director of the Office of Leadership and Development, Dr. Taylor Hayes. And I'll still remember the day he said, you go for it. You want to try it, you do it. And that was so inspiring to me. It wasn't like, well, you know, we've never done that before and we don't think you'll be able to get out on time and your patients will be, you know, impacted by it. He said, go for it and you try it. And if that works for you, I want to support you. And I think that led to, for me, retention at Mayo. I saw that as someone who was invested in me being happy, addressing the work-life issues, I was comfortable with working a part-time schedule for being there for my children. And I did that for almost 10 years and led that to open doors for other women who came in after me to say, tell me how you did that because I'd like to do the same. So I think that that's something that as we look at listening to what will make your career satisfaction go the way you want at Mayo Clinic, it's okay to try something different and be innovative. And that was not considered innovative at that time. It's like, oh no, if people just take a day off, why aren't you doing that? Oh, well, that's not what I want. My, I'm being innovative around what the needs of my children are. And, and I was offered that chance. And I think one of the best things about Mayo Clinic is we're not afraid of innovation. We're not afraid of positive disruption and change and piloting things and thinking outside the box. And so that's a great way that you were a forerunner so that others could take advantage of learning from you. So thanks for doing that. Erin. My husband's not in medicine, he's a writer, so we have more flexibility. As I was listening to you say that, I was thinking that I would like to see more of those opportunities for men also. We have paternity leave and family leave. I would like to see that expanded and also utilized so that men are taking time off when a new baby is born or men have that flexibility to have a nine to three schedule and that's more normalized. So the responsibility is less on the women and more equal. So I think that's an opportunity also. And, and that is a society pressure also, Don, like you had brought up earlier, there's society expectations and I think we need more pressure on the men and opportunities for men and expectation for men. There are some men who take that time, and I, I hope that that's allowed and encouraged, and I'd like to see more of that and more innovation about more equality and, and flexibility. Yeah, and before we wrap this up, I want to thank all the people who have listened today, but particularly those who are men who have listened. And I know that there are many men who want to help women, and I know that there are women who want to ensure that men also have some of the advantages and flexibility that women have been afforded. So how do we help men in this space? And how do we help men help women? Well, we need all the help we can get. I can say that, no, this has been empowering, just listening to this and, and just listening to just the story, Sandy, as you said that the school drop off. I mean, our legacy are our children and our families and the ability to be able to do that. Uh, and just Aaron, just like you said, 7.30 OR start it's not conducive with school drop-offs or pickups and surgery is one of those things that can sometimes overrun and we will always take care of our patients and so having that ability to learn from these stories moving forward to allow mothers and fathers to be able to do that i think is is truly empowering or to allow men to work part-time and for men to not feel shamed or feel guilt that they want to work part-time mm -hmm. but i just want to acknowledge that there are a lot of men who truly want to help 
women Absolutely. like Sanj. Yep. And any other thoughts you have, Sanj, as our sole male representative? No, no, I think these conversations are critical. And I think this should be a springboard to keep doing what we're doing. We've learned so many things that Mayo is leading in. And I think as long as we continue to uh, keep our foot down on that pedal and drive these changes, I think is always a good thing. Yeah, we'd like to thank our diversity leadership and also our senior leadership, Dr. Faruja and Ms. Zorn, for allowing us to have this podcast and for being very compassionate and passionate about equity, inclusion, and diversity, including for all colleagues, but especially women. So we've been talking today about women in medicine with doctors O'Brien, Pruthi, and Pritt. Thank you all for your invaluable expertise and of course your time, because that is very precious. If you have enjoyed Mayo Clinic's Talks podcast, please subscribe. I'm Dawn Davis. And I'm Sanj Kaka. Stay healthy. Thank you. And thank you for your time. Mm-hmm.